you're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning methods for generating and reasoning with natural language. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Armando Solar Lazama, who's a professor at MIT and the Associate Director and Chief Operating Officer of CSAIL. Armando's PhD thesis is titled Program Synthesis by Sketching, which he completed in 2008 at UC Berkeley. We talk about his PhD work on Sketch, a program synthesis system in which insights are communicated through a partial program, or Sketch, that expresses the high-level structure of an implementation, but leaves holes in place of low-level details that are automatically filled in by the system. Armando provides a background on program synthesis, the problem of generating programs automatically from high-level specifications. Then we discuss the key ideas behind Sketch and how it has evolved over time. We talk about machine learning and how its intersection with program synthesis has grown to become a key focus of Armando's research and we contextualize recent advances in neurosymbolic methods with recent large-scale language models, such as OpenAI Codex. There's a lot more, and this was a fascinating conversation. And as always, be sure to stay around for some great advice. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Thesis Review. To support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash thesis review, or make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Armando Solar Lazama with Program Synthesis by Sketching on the Thesis Review. In your thesis and in your research, uh, you focus on program synthesis. And so I'm sure over the years you've used or you've taught various different programming languages and various different programming paradigms. If you were kind of stuck on a desert island and only got to choose one programming paradigm or even one language, uh, what would it be? That's a really hard question. I uh, <laughs> One of the things I... I think different languages are really good for different things, and mm-hmm. you know I, I should prefix this that I'm not uh, I'm not a language snob. I you know even some of the languages that people love to uh, pan like uh, you know C and JavaScript uh, I find them actually a lot of fun to work with, uh, mm-hmm. as long as you're aware of the pitfalls. Um, in fact, uh, my sketch synthesizer was actually written in C++, the, the core, the algorithmic core of it. And it was really the only language that at the time gave me the control that I needed over all the internal uh, representations. But, you know, C++ is also a really dangerous language. You, you really don't want to use it unless you, you absolutely have to. So it really depends on, on what you need and what you're trying to do, what, what the right tool for the job is going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you were getting started, like how early did you get started in programming? And 
was it with something like C or C++? So my, my very first programming was basic. Uh, hmm. I, I actually, as, as a kid, I had this, uh, this, uh, little computer that, uh, you, you had to connect, if you wanted to store anything, you could connect a cassette recorder and it could store like very small amounts of information in cassette, uh, uh tapes, uh, that, uh, that usually you could only recover them like once or twice before <laughs> it failed. Um, hmm. But uh, but yeah, I, I actually started as a kid with uh, with basic, and yeah, it was only later that that I you know started learning uh, other other languages. Just as like a, a path leading up to your PhD, it sounds like you got involved in programming kind of early on. When did it kind of shift to um, you know wanting to do a PhD and getting interested in research? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I, uh, I, I actually, nobody in my extended family had ever gotten a, a PhD. Um, hmm. So uh, I, on, on the other hand, I, I like building stuff and I like figuring stuff out, which in retrospect, uh, it makes sense that I, that I became a researcher, but uh in fact, when when I applied to to graduate school, I I was still kind of unsure if I if I really wanted to go to graduate school or not. So I ended up applying only to MIT, CMU, and Berkeley. And I figured, well, if if one of them takes me, then I'll go to grad school, <laughs> and mm-hmm. if not, I'll do something else. And uh, and you know, in retrospect, that was both reckless, but also pretty lucky that, uh, that I, I got admitted to Berkeley, uh, both MIT and CMU turned me down, uh, which is, you know, probably understandable, but yeah. And, and actually when I started my PhD, I started working on high performance computing, which, uh, it, it wasn't really until later that, that I made the switch to, to work more fully in programming languages. I see. Yeah. Do you maybe remember something that like how did you get interested then in in doing a phd did it seem kind of like the natural thing to do if you want to go deeper in this area or because you'd mentioned like your extended family hadn't got phd so is there something to say about like your story and what actually did lead you or encourage you to do a phd so one thing that that for me was really critical were the the mentors that i had as uh, mm-hmm. as an undergraduate I, uh, when I was at an undergraduate at, uh, at Texas A&M, uh, I actually started out as a nuclear engineering, uh, major for, for a very short while. And, uh, I, after I switched to computer science, the, uh, one of the, one of the professors in the, uh, nuclear engineering department, actually Marvin, uh, Adams, he, he actually did, uh, computational work. And so he, he reached out to me and he said, well, if, if you're interested in, in computing, uh, why don't you try uh, uh, working with my research group? And so this was really a great opportunity for me. It, uh, it connected me, to, uh, 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 it connected me to, to his research group and then also to a research group that he was collaborating with. 
uh, in the computer science uh, department at uh, Texas A&M. There's a professor there, Lawrence uh, Rushwager, who um, was, you know, absolutely uh, a fantastic uh, mentor. And he really took me under his wing and, uh, and uh, you know, brought me into his, uh, his research group. And he, uh, uh, he worked on compilers and uh, as well as, as high-performance computing. So, so that was really my, my introduction to, to the field. I see. Yeah. 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 And I, so I grew up in Austin, so there's always this rivalry between UT and Texas A&M, but yes, <laughs> we're all friends now. So <laughs> I won't take that personally. Uh, my parents live in Austin, so. Okay. Yeah. Um, my sister actually went to UT. Oh, okay. Good, good. Um, so then, yeah, so maybe we could start talking about uh, your thesis, but then just also, you know, your research in general um, has kind of centered or focused on this idea of program synthesis. So maybe just to start, could you, like, what is program synthesis uh, for someone who maybe hasn't heard of it or just as a way to start the conversation? Sure. So so program synthesis is, is a name we give really to a set of techniques that allow you to generate a piece of code that satisfies some objectives about what the code should do but also about what the code should look like. And one of the things that is really important about these program synthesis techniques is the ability to incorporate a lot of domain knowledge about how this artifact, this piece of code that we're trying to generate should actually look like. What are the components that it should be built from? What Mm. are the uh, maybe what are some of the the looping structures that that we allow and and this is really critical in allowing us to make up for example for shortcomings in the functional specification right oftentimes it's really really hard to fully describe exactly what you want a piece of code to do but by also being able to control something about the structure you can generalize better from partial information about its behavior. I see. So it's almost like, so in the specification, there's a decision about what the way that you specify it is so that there's a sufficient number of constraints for the solution. Yes, that's right. And one of the things that that is uh, exciting about this area, there has been a lot of research, even around the question of what is the right way to to specify things. Um, hmm. So back back in the early early days of, of program synthesis, all, all the way back in the early 80s, there was a sense that if you want to generate a piece of code, you need to be able to give a full, formal, complete description of what this piece of code is going to do. And, and that's really hard. In some hmm. cases, that's even harder than just writing the code. Um, and it's also surprisingly error prone. Um, it's very easy to write specifications that you think fully constrain the behavior of, of the code and then have a synthesizer come back and gives you, give you a piece of code that does exactly what you asked for and completely the wrong thing. Uh, absolutely not what you expected. And so being able to combine even very lightweight forms of specification like 
input-output examples, which are in many cases very easy to write, but are woefully incomplete. But combining them with information about, well, the code can only use these building blocks, it can only general, it can only uh, uh, generalize in these particular ways, can allow you to actually get useful pieces of code, even with very, very lightweight specifications like this. And then in some cases, or like if you look across time, is the history kind of things getting fuzzier and fuzzier in the sense that you can start using natural language to specify the program? There has been a lot of interest in in recent years, especially with the advent of deep learning. One of the things that deep learning allows us to do is to associate meaning to very informal, unstructured sources of input, be they natural language, be they pictures. And so there, there is certainly a lot of interest in taking advantage of that. However, there is also a lot of interest within the programming uh, systems community, especially in making sure that certain hard constraints that you want the code to, to satisfy, that they can indeed be guaranteed to, to be satisfied, right? And so you might have a very high-level, fuzzy, informal, uh, natural language description of what you want the code to do. But if you also have some concrete input-output examples, for example, you want to make sure that that code you generate uh, it's it's hard to tell whether it really indeed does whatever the natural language says that it should do, but it absolutely should satisfy these input-output examples, right? Yeah. And, and I think one of the differences between program synthesis and more traditional machine learning is the way, the desire to have a little bit more control as to what you consider sort of tolerable errors and what you consider non-negotiable properties that the resulting code is supposed to satisfy. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, hopefully later on we could talk some more about the uh, like the very recent progress, especially in language modeling. But yeah, maybe to, to start, we could talk about what you looked into in your thesis. So like you mentioned this dream of software synthesis and it's to capture high-level insights of the programmer and automatically derive efficient implementations. Uh, and then your thesis talks about the system called Sketch. So maybe starting like with this interface uh, or with the specification problem that we were just talking about, kind of what did you look into in your thesis? What was the specification and then what was the system uh, doing? Sure. So... So one of the things that uh, one of the uh, one of the big insights in in that work was that in a lot of cases the the programmer has a high level idea of of what they want and uh, and even of how the code should look like and it's sometimes in the details where it's very easy to get bogged down. And so the hypothesis behind that work was that if we could provide a mechanism for the programmer to say, this is what I know for sure. This is what I know about the structure of the code. And then here are some details that I don't want to bother with. Uh, please go figure them out. 
then the system would actually be able to focus its its power on figuring out that stuff rather than trying to spend lots and lots of resources figuring out something that maybe you already know about the the code that you're trying to uh, to produce. Uh, part of the idea was the realization that this high level dream of oh I'm just going to tell the machine what I want and the machine will figure it out on its own that was very difficult to uh, to achieve at at any level of scale. But if we could concentrate that power and those key places in in the program where the user might really struggle that we could get something really useful but still something that that was feasible mm -hmm. it's almost like introducing some constraints to say that these part this part of the program is going to be fixed and then you have these different holes then the system learns to fill in those holes essentially right that's kind of the overall idea Yes, exactly. Uh, now, at the time, we weren't really thinking about learns specifically. The mm -hmm. uh, uh, deduce is is probably a better um, uh, a better uh, term, or or actually. Sorry, I, I think after after being in machine learning so long, I just say learns for everything. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, and uh, but uh, but this is actually really critical because it's. Uh, on, on the one hand, it's, it's something that was nice about the system that, that you could get something to work without any kind of training, without any kind of prior data. But there's also a major shortcoming because it meant that every new problem was, had to be solved completely from scratch, right? without any kind of background knowledge, completely from first principles which is very different from how humans solve programming problems, right? You, if, mm -hmm. if I give you a programming problem, you don't start thinking at the level of, well, I know what an addition does and I know what a for loop does. Now let's think about how I combine, can combine them together to get what I want, right? That, that is just uh, uh, not how people think about, uh, about code. They think in terms of higher level concepts and, uh, and, uh, you know, higher level building blocks. Yeah, and actually on that note of, of yeah, it's not learned. It, it seems like reading through the thesis, a large part of it was coming up with writing down the kind of semantics of everything. Like you use something called denotational semantics. And it seems like you're able to specify mathematically what the execution will be like. And so I was curious, like as you're doing research on this, is it actually mostly like pen and paper, almost like mathematical work? Or are you implementing something on the side to make sure that this works? Kind of just at a higher level, what is the research day-to-day -day like when you're working on a problem like this? There was a lot of both. And, and this is one of the things that I really like about programming languages work in general, in that it really bridges all the way from very pencil and paper, uh, very formal to, okay, now, now we have to make this work and, and we have to hack this thing because at the end of the day, I want a piece of code that will actually run efficiently and that, uh, that will scale and that uh, will you know, not run out of memory on, on these problems that I'm trying to solve. So, so there was really a lot of both. And 
one of the things that that was fun about this uh, this project is, you know, we would code something up and and then see that that it it was having trouble expressing the the thing that we wanted to express, and so we, we uh, would think of uh, some way uh, some way around this, some way to improve this, and then you go back to to the pencil and paper and try to formalize this thing that you just did in in the code and try to understand how to talk about it how to how to describe it and in that process you also realize that oh there's there's this cleaner way of of thinking about this this thing that I did here in the code and so now I can actually go back to to my implementation and leverage those insights to to implement things more more efficiently has the kind of day-to-day nature of research changed over time or would working on a problem like this today kind of still have the same mix of pen and paper as well as other? I think so. Uh, I mean, I think for, uh, you know, definitely working with, working with my students now, in fact, uh, I'm, I'm working with, uh, master student right now, uh, Ria uh, Das. She's collaborating with, uh, with me and, uh, and a former postdoc in, uh, in my group, Zena Tavares, and also with Josh Tenenbaum. And we're working on a brand new language that, uh, that is uh, intended to answer questions about causality, but mm-hmm. underneath it's also a language for program synthesis. Right, and uh, and we have been following the same kind of cycle of uh, uh, trying things out and implementing them, and then trying to formalize the things that work and uh, trying to connect them to to things that we understand at at a more formal level, and then from that understanding, realizing that that the algorithm can be made cleaner in in different ways, and then uh, you know really going through these back and forth process between the very pencil and paper uh, uh, reasoning and the, uh, the actual implementation to, to really try to get this thing to work. Mm-hmm. And then, so another aspect of this is that you frame the problem uh, in terms of constraint satisfaction and not just like an intuitive idea of constraint satisfaction, but kind of at the end, you're able to run a SAT solver on it. Um, so maybe you could just talk through that idea or in general, like how does the SAT solving, does this appear a lot in your research or on these different problems that you're working on? So I think we're very early in in the use of SAT solvers for, for this purpose. This was mm-hmm. actually, so my very, very first uh, synthesis project when, when I started working with, uh, with my advisor, Ras Bodic, we, we realized that, that in order to make this, this work somewhere internally, we had to solve this uh, uh, challenging search problem. And so that first system had just this very ad hoc solver that uh, that I wrote just specifically for for this purpose it uh, it uh, so the problem that we were solving were these bit packing uh, problems where you're trying to 
write a, a piece of code that relies on extracting and, and packing bits in, in a word. And that uh, solver, you know, worked pretty well for, for the problem we wanted and was absolutely not generalizable to anything beyond the problems that, that we ran it with. And so right around this time where we were really trying to step back and think about uh, what we could do to, to make this idea that we had tried in this domain, make it a little bit more general. Sanjit Seshia came to, uh, to Berkeley to, for what was actually his job talk. Um, and he was really at the forefront in the development of SMT solvers. Um, and so after, after his talk, uh, Ross uh, was the one who suggested, hey, you know, uh, we should talk to him. Maybe, maybe there's something there that, uh, that we could leverage for, for this. And one of the things that we realized very quickly was that the problem that we needed to solve was not one that was directly representable as, as a SAT problem. The, the problem had this quantifier alternation. And so kind of in a whim, we decided, hey, you know, what if we don't actually try to solve the quantifier alternation problem? What if we do some iterative thing where we just try to solve for some examples and then see if it, uh, if it generalizes? And, mm-hmm. and in the beginning, that started as, hey, let's just try this and, and see if that works. And, and it really wasn't until much later that, uh, that we realized that there was actually a much more general idea behind, these, uh, behind this algorithm, that this was something that could be generalized to, uh, to this whole uh, uh, framework that, that we later called uh, counterexample-guided inductive synthesis. Mm, I see. So yeah, it was a bit of a uh, creative leap at the time to make this connection between SAT solving and the problem you're working on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that uh, that was really something quite uh, quite distinct about uh, about this project, and and it was really, um, I I think it was really uh, this this collaboration between uh between the three of us that that helped us connect connect all the necessary dots Mm -hmm. is this something you still like keep track of of progress in sat solving and it's like a really useful uh sub problem to keep in mind um or was it kind of specific to this project and uh just in your research you haven't used sat solving again no, we we have actually, and uh, you know, periodically, you know, by by now we have our little stable of uh, of different synthesis approaches. That that when we run into a new problem, we you know we try some of these different uh, some of these different techniques and these solver based techniques for for the problems for which they work. They remain extremely extremely powerful. And, uh, you know, even, even, as, uh, uh, even for some of the ongoing projects that, uh, that we have right now, it is something that uh, is, uh, you know, some of the first things that, uh, that we try. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, so I think you're getting at 
or you mentioned this idea of counterexample guided inductive synthesis, and it seems like this was a key thing in the thesis. And yeah, so this was interesting reading through it. It seems like um, this prob- this constraint satisfaction problem is one of these cases where, you know, the number of constraints ends up being the number of atoms in the universe or something, <laughs> one of those type things. And then I guess the idea was that you could kind of just focus on the average case or on different edge cases. And again, this seems like such a creative or such like a bold leap to think that this problem was solvable at all. So yeah, was there kind of a noteworthy uh, backstory behind uh, how you got this idea and how you got it to work? Well, so so again, I think the the origins of these were were simply around hey, we were trying to solve this problem that that requires us to reason about the space of all possible programs mm-hmm. and also the space of all possible inputs that those programs might run over, right? And and you're looking for a program out of this huge huge space that works for all the inputs out of this huge, huge space of, of inputs, right? And one of the challenges you have is that both of those things grow exponentially very, very quickly, right? Mm-hmm. If already, if you're looking at uh, even very, very simple language with very simple building blocks and you look at, okay, how many programs can I write in uh, three lines of, of code or four lines of code? It turns out very, very quickly uh, to to be an astronomical uh, number, uh, an astronomically large number. But, you know, we wanted to try out to see whether uh, a SAT solver and the the search capability of the SAT solver could help us run that search more efficiently, right? That, That was the question we started with. But very quickly, we realized, well, the SAT solver is great at solving these uh, uh, exists problems, right? Do there exi- does there exist an assignment to these variables that satisfy all these constraints? And we had to solve this problem of does there exist an assignment to these variables that makes this constraint satisfiable for all assignments to these other variables representing the, the inputs? And so at the time, there were some solvers that that claimed to to be able to solve this kind of problem, but they were just not fast enough uh, for for what we wanted to do. And I think really the the insight here was to realize that, well, we're not just solving an arbitrary constraint problem. We're we're solving uh, for this problem where you already have a lot of structure coming from the code. And that usually, if you make the wrong decision about the code, if you write the wrong code, it's not just going to be wrong uh, on, you know, one corner case input. Maybe it will be if, if you mess up, if you mess up some really rare branch in the program, but especially if you mess up something in the common path of, of the program, it's just going to be wrong for lots and lots of inputs, right? If, if anything, you, you might have a couple of inputs where by pure chance it gives the right answer, but it will give the wrong answer on lots of things. And so this idea that we could generate strong enough constraints just from a few key well-chosen inputs 
that uh, you know was was an intriguing hypothesis that that we wanted to try out and and uh, and it turned out to uh, to to pan out and uh, uh, actually scale uh, scale quite well. But I think the thing that was more exciting about this was when we realized that this wasn't just a way of solving this particular kind of Boolean problem, but that this was an idea that could be turned into a framework where now if you had some way of checking programs and generating counterexamples from them, you could plug it in to, to this framework and, uh, and uh, work with that. And if you had some idea of some mechanism for searching for programs that satisfied some examples, you could put, you could put the two of them together and get a synthesizer to give you verified programs. And that's what really made this framework very, um, very, very powerful. Mm -hmm. I see. So then if you, if you look back over the years, like, so I saw there's a version of sketch on GitHub and it was updated, uh, you know, relatively recently. Has the framework kind of stayed the same and then the individual parts get better? Like you mentioned, if we have a method to search, is like the search gets better over time, but the framework has stayed the same? Or kind of how does Sketch from 2008 differ or is it very similar to the Sketch in 2020? So I think it's it's evolved quite a bit. And mm -hmm. uh uh, one of the things that you find also as a, as a researcher is when you invest in a platform and some research infrastructure, it can really enable you to try certain things that, uh, that would be difficult to try if, if you are just building from scratch. And so there is an incentive to, uh, to leverage the platform and to build things on top of the platform. And so, for example... You know, all the way back in 2010, actually. Uh, so I started collaborating with Swarat uh, Chadhuri, and uh, we had this idea of using numerical optimization to um, to synthesize programs and to essentially discover unknowns in programs. And uh, you know, this this was uh, a little bit ahead of its time. Uh, I think at the time nobody was talking about. Uh, differentiable programming um, mm -hmm. and in fact it uh, it it was so so early that uh, even though we had this approach of uh, of using numerical optimization to solve for unknowns in programs and we had this scheme for making the programs uh, continuous and differentiable and, and generating these differentiable approximation to, to the program, it never actually occurred to us to connect this with, a, uh, with uh, an actual gradient-based uh, search method. So mm. we actually ended up using uh, uh, Nelder Mead for our, our numerical optimization for, for this work, right? But, but all of that was built on top of the Sketch platform. Right, mm -hmm. and it was actually really, uh, really nice to have these ready-made synthesis language to have um, uh, all this infrastructure that that allowed us to very quickly just try out 
these ideas of, of using numerical optimization to, uh, to find unknowns in programs and to generate these uh, smooth approximations to, um, to the behavior of the program so that the numerical optimization would have an easier time finding, uh, finding local optima in, uh, in these uh, functions represented as, as programs. And we have actually continued along uh, uh, that uh, work. We're actually working on a new release of, of Sketch that incorporates a fully uh, optimization-based uh, solver. This one does uh, rely on automatic differentiation. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it turns out that for some problems, that is really the, the right tool to, to use. But having all of these uh, features combined in in a uniform framework gives you a lot of uh, gives you a lot of power to try things out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that is fast. That's one of the best things about this podcast is hearing about different projects or ideas that span, uh, you know, even decades. And so, in terms of like the interface, um, maybe I'll send out on Twitter or something, some, some pictures from the thesis. So you do show some examples of what it would look like to use sketch where you kind of have a program, then you have these different, you know, holes that will be filled in. Um, has that also changed over time? Like I think in the future work right towards the end of the thesis, you actually mentioned like, this is an open question, whether this is the best interface for, for users. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so this is actually a really good question. So, so at one level, Sketch was an extremely successful project. It it really demonstrated this capability of of what you could discover automatically, in terms of even very tricky details of non-trivial um, uh, algorithms, and. Uh, as, as I said before, we have we have leveraged that uh, that infrastructure in a number of of projects, even for a lot of things that you wouldn't think at first sight that this is a problem that you want to attack with program synthesis, right? So, so for example, a few years ago, we were looking at the problem of uh, reverse engineering a uh, design. Let's say you have a design for a machine part. And an actual blob of uh, uh, metal, for example, you have these machine parts and you're trying to generate a high level program that describes how to build these machine parts from um, high level geometric primitives, right? Mm-hmm. So, so this was a project that we did in collaboration with uh, um, uh, Wojciech Matusek's uh, group and uh, it involved uh, a number of students uh, was was led by Tao uh, Du. And, you know, this is a problem that for sight might not look like the kind of problem you want to do program synthesis for. But, you know, you, we showed that, uh, that you could do it. But at another level, Sketch was kind of a complete failure in that the programming model that, that it aspired to, uh, uh, to embody was one that, that is really not a very good fit, right? Uh, 
you know, I, I like programming a lot and very often I'm writing some piece of code for something and I run into a scenario that should be ideal for sketch where I, I have sort of a rough idea of the algorithm that I'm trying to write, but there's lots of tricky details that I need to figure out. And, uh, and it's, you know, right at the right scope to, to do this. Right. And so, you know, I, uh, I wrote the language, I, I know how to use it, uh, you know, probably better than anybody else, uh, <laughs> which, uh, uh, you know, maybe it's not saying much, but, uh, you know, I will go and encode the problem. And quite often I find that in the time it takes me to encode the problem and to uh, debug my sketch and to debug my uh, specification of my constraints, I probably could have written the thing uh, faster. Mm. And part of the challenge is that sketch is based on this very crisp division of this is what I know and what I'm going to fully write in code. And that part is untouchable, right? The system has absolutely no flexibility to change anything about the parts of the code that I fully wrote. And then there are the holes, right? And, uh, and so for the holes, I need to describe the space of programs that I can uh, consider. And so the, the two things that make that very challenging is that one, sometimes the things that you think you know, uh, you might actually be missing some little thing, some, some little detail that, uh, that means that it doesn't matter how it completes the, the missing part. It's not going to work, right? Mm -hmm. And debugging a program you wrote is hard enough. Debugging a program that you haven't even written that, that has all these holes all over the place is, is actually something that, uh, that is hard and, and takes some skill. So, mm -hmm. so that's one part of it. The other part of it is when you get to the things that you're not specifying, that you're letting the system search for you. Um, you have to tell it what is the space of, of programs that, uh, that it can use. And so there you can give it a very, very wide open space, but then it's going to take a really, really long time to search it. Mm -hmm. Or you can give it a more restrictive space, but now you have to figure out how to restrict the space. And if you're restricting the space, then you run the risk that you are uh, limiting what it can use in a way that, that the space no longer contains the right solution, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do you know that you're not restricting it so that it doesn't contain the right solution anymore? Uh, and so, so very quickly, you can end up in, in a setting where first you have to know <laughs> what is the program that you're searching for. Um, what we found is that the place where this technology works better is not as a feature in a widely used programming language, um, which uh, was kind of the, the original vision behind the project, uh, that, uh, that really uh, is, is not something that we know how to make it work, but rather as a uh, part of a bigger system. Right. The, the bigger successes, the biggest successes we have found with Sketch are where somebody takes the time to describe 
very carefully the space of programs that you have to search. Somebody takes the time to describe very carefully what uh, a whole family of specifications instead of just one. And then that effort can get amortized over many, many, many different synthesis problems that are all similar. So you might have a higher level tool that internally it's generating synthesis problems and feeding them to, uh, uh, to the solver. So is there hope for this higher level idea of communicating certain high level aspects of a program and having a system fill them in? Like, yeah, after doing this for so long, is that maybe the wrong way of framing the problem or, yeah? Well, I, I don't think it's the wrong way. And I think it is actually a nice interface if you have the right degree of, of flexibility. So mm-hmm. one of the challenges we had with the original formal methods-based uh, approaches was this uh, Boolean quality where either uh, you, know, you can't touch this part of the code or you have a full search problem in front of you where either you fully satisfy the specification or you or the system just comes back and says sorry you can't and uh, and gives you nothing right mm-hmm. and so i think the same interface but with a more flexible technology one that is more permissive one that can actually tell for example that okay yes i cannot satisfy your problem as you gave it to me, but I can, you know, tweak this uh, 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 this information that that you gave me, right? And where it's able to uh, treat that information more as it's additional information, but treat it more from a probabilistic perspective, right? Where mm-hmm. it can. Uh, weigh evidence and weigh different sources of, of evidence against its prior knowledge about uh, about the problem, I think you can make that kind of an interface work much, much better and, and in a way that is really uh, much more productive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so then it, it's, it's starting to sound like now these less maybe exact non-Boolean things might start falling into the domain of machine learning so over time how has machine learning and like especially the rise of deep learning uh, began to intersect with uh, these interests in program synthesis so i i think quite extensively and uh and i i would say today the the center of gravity of of my research group is is really focused on neurosymbolic techniques and this question of exactly how do we leverage the strengths of deep learning, but without losing some of the very uh, clear uh, strengths that, that the formal methods techniques also bring to, uh, to the table. Because mm-hmm. at, at the end of the day, even though there are a lot of really uh, powerful things that you can do with deep learning, I think there is still a place for these uh, uh, formal methods-based techniques and their ability to give you strong guarantees about the things that you care to have guarantees about, and also their ability to assemble 
information and to aggregate information and to allow you to search very efficiently over very large, discrete uh, combinatorial spaces, taking advantage of additional facts or additional information that you know about the, the domain. That is something very, very powerful about the formal methods and logic-based uh, techniques that uh, when you combine it with uh, uh, deep learning can actually give you a lot of power. Uh-huh. So for someone who's maybe not familiar with this term neural symbolic, could you give an example of like this intersection or this hybrid method? Like what would be the neural part and what would be the symbolic part? So there's actually a whole space of techniques here, depending on exactly how you manage to interface the symbolic and the neural aspects uh, of this. So, for example, one uh, one very concrete example of, of this kind of a method is this uh, sketch adapt technique, for example, that uh, um, one of the students in uh, in uh, my group, uh, Max Nye, in collaboration with Josh Tenenbaum, uh, uh, published a few a few years ago now. And so, on the one hand, you want to leverage the ability of a neural network to learn very complex conditional distributions for fairly complex objects, right? So in this case, it's a distribution over programs conditioned on a specification. So what you want is you want to be able to say conditioned on this evidence or conditioned on this specification, I want to be able to sample a distribution of our programs that are likely to satisfy my specification, right? And so this is an approach that is uh, very, very powerful. You have these neural guided search techniques that leverage this ability of the neural network to give you what at the end of the day is just a program, a, a piece of code. But one of the things that you have is if you look at different problems in a particular uh, domain, there are some aspects of the problem that are tend to be very regular and very repetitive. And this is the, you know, when people write code, a lot of coding is just muscle memory. You, you sort of know exactly how the code is supposed to look like. You know uh, from certain aspects of the program, uh, of the description of what you're trying to do, certain constructions that you need to use and certain uh, design patterns that, that you need to use. But there's also a way in which every programming problem can be very unique, right? And, and if you have a, prob a pro problem, for example, that needs to compute some arithmetic expression, say, right? And, and there might be this scaffolding that is very predictable, but then there's like this specific arithmetic expression that, that maybe you've never seen a program that uses this exact arithmetic expression with the exact constants that are needed to, to satisfy my specification. And so it's a pretty tall order to ask a neural network to infer how to complete, uh, how to come up with this particular expression that, that it has never seen before. And it has never seen a program before that uses this exact, uh, this exact expression. And so the idea 
in this paper was to train the neural network in a way that allows it to separate the more predictable parts of the program, which the network is then going to try to just do uh, by itself and, and spit out as a concrete piece of code with the less predictable parts of the program where the network can decide that actually it's less risky to simply leave this as a placeholder for a symbolic method to complete instead of trying to, you know, just make a wild guess and, uh, and then get it wrong. And so right, yeah. training the network so that it's able to balance the cost of leaving these placeholders, because every one of these placeholders is now creating this burden of this uh, very expensive search, but being able to weigh that against the risk of just getting it wrong, of, uh, of trying to make a wild guess about a part of the program that, that is really kind of unpredictable and, and that really depends on the details and very subtle details of, of the specification. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a nice description. That's a really nice idea where you have the, this distinction between kind of the thing that you would maybe expect a neural network to be good at, the um, kind of common pieces across many problems, uh, but then using the symbolic system to fill in these specific key parts. So then like one thing that raised a lot of attention recently were these very large scale language models um, like OpenAI Codex, Google had a similar paper where they had, you know, 175 billion parameters. And based on the description you just gave, it seems like they were just taking this first part where you condition the model on some specification. It could be natural language. Uh, and then it gives you a distribution over different programs. And there's no symbolic uh, component to it. So how do you kind of view these was this do their results change your view of the problem at all or do you kind of view this as a useful component for something that would have a symbolic system uh, yeah just in general what have these recent advances in uh, or uses of large-scale language models uh, meant to you well so so on the one hand I think these these models are extremely exciting it, uh, some of the things that, that they've shown that these models can do and, and the amount of information that they can capture about code in the wild and about how code in the wild looks like, I think is, is extremely impressive and, and opens a whole set of, of possibilities for new programming uh, paradigms and new programming models. At mm -hmm. the same time, a lot of the shortcomings that people have pointed out in, in the way these, uh, these models uh, work and in the kind of code that this model produce comes precisely from this absence of any kind of symbolic uh, element uh, to them, right? And, and, you know, some of these is as simple as you can use very standard um, program analysis techniques, for example, to, you know, to clean up the code, to get rid of things like unused uh, uh, variables and, and that uh, code and things that you can tell right away, they, they might not even type check um, 
for for example right mm -hmm. and also once it's one thing to uh, it's one thing to get something that is almost what you were looking for right but it's a different thing to get something that you would trust to to put in your uh, code base uh, uh, right as it comes out of of the tool and uh, and so I think I I really see these uh, these uh, these models as as kind of the the opening uh, uh, the opening flag if you will for what is is very likely to be a very promising area of research around. How do you combine the the unquestionably powerful capabilities that that these models have with all the abilities that we have to to reason about code and about what uh, code is going to do, about how code is going to behave, and also to be able to uh, check against, uh, for example, strong constraints that that the users might. Uh, want to express whether in the form of test harnesses or in the form of assertions that uh, that would really take you to the point where this becomes a real productivity aid and uh, and not uh, not just uh, an, an exciting uh, 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 demo right yeah yeah that's a good point and like I, I wonder, do you think that some work that's already been done can almost be redone just with these more powerful models and we might see surprisingly good results? Like, for instance, we might have had a neural symbolic model before, but the neural part was much weaker. And potentially that might be like a, a next thing to do is now that we have much more powerful neural models, some of the existing problems that we've already solved might actually work surprisingly well. Yeah, 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 for sure. And, uh, and I think one of the limitations that, that a lot of the early work on neural guided synthesis had, for example, was just the uh, uh, paucity of, of good data mm -hmm. and the, the difficulty of getting good, uh, uh, good data sets. And so, uh, as a result, I think the, the neural aspects of, of some of these systems that try to combine neural and uh, um, neural and symbolic uh, reasoning were somewhat limited in that, uh, in that regard. Uh -huh. And so I think having, having really strong uh, neural components it could, uh, I think, uh, make a big difference even for some of these existing techniques. What would really surprise you if you saw it on archive tomorrow? Yeah, is there like a, a specific problem in mind that you see is like right on the cusp of being solved? And if you saw a, a solution tomorrow, like what type of thing would really make you surprised? Well, that's, that's a good question. Uh, Certainly, one thing that one thing that I would really like to maybe I would I will do like politicians do and, and replace the question you asked with with the question I want to answer, uh, mm -hmm. which is more you know what what are things that I wish uh, there was somebody working on right now 
that uh, that I would be really excited to see. And and I think one thing that I think we don't understand really well right now is we're starting to see more and more possibilities and more and more capabilities around um, automation, right? Our, our ability to generate uh, pieces of code that, that do interesting things is, is growing. I think there's going to be a need for more research that, that really looks at the question of how do we incorporate these things into a development model? Right, and how do we build new languages and new development models around these uh, these capabilities that that take for granted, that take advantage of of these uh, these capabilities and and leverage them to uh, actually help solve uh, general programming problems end to end? I I think that's an open question, and and I would really like to see more uh, on that. So almost like trying to understand the gap between research and how it actually translates to helping in practice or yeah 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 and 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 this entails many things right this entails things like uh, 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 so so we wrote to this uh, this paper with a few colleagues at uh, Intel as that by uh, Justin uh, uh, Gottlich where where we talked about the the three pillars of, of machine programming and one of the uh, one of the big things that we talk about there is uh, the intention problem, right? Just getting to the bottom of what the user actually wants, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of software systems are hard. Yes, because some of them are hard because they have, you know, hard algorithms that have tricky details that have to be figured out. But a lot of systems are hard just because we want them to do lots and lots of things. And it just takes a lot of time and effort to spell out in all the required detail, all the things that we want this system to be able to do, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think that remains in part the, the Achilles heel of any effort at general purpose automation, right? You can do great if you're focusing on a particular domain you can you know build the right abstractions for that domain and make it so that people can express the things that they want to express for that domain very very concisely but true general purpose automation fundamentally requires addressing this problem of intention how do i efficiently capture all this information that that i need about all the intricate behaviors that I expect this complicated piece of software to, to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it might even involve some interactivity where initially you say something and then the system asks some clarification or something like that. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, the, the, the challenge is how do you make that not feel like, uh, you know, trying to, uh, uh, trying to explain parliamentary procedure to a four-year-old, right? Where, <laughs> uh, you know, just when there's such, when there's a really big gap uh, in, uh, in just domain knowledge between the, the explainer and the, uh, uh, and the implementer, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. that, that is a, a fundamentally difficult problem. 
Yeah, yeah. Just to um, include a question about like your current lab and so now you're at MIT and also hold leadership positions there. Uh, what is your lab looking into now? We, we're really interested in, in this whole space of neurosymbolic techniques. And we're especially excited about this, not just from the perspective of bringing in more neural techniques and how do you combine them to get better software development tools, for example, but also the flip side of this question, which is programming is itself a very nice model for a high-skilled, very cognitively demanding task that you know doesn't just require the, the muscle memory part, but it also requires being able to incorporate lots of domain knowledge and lots of uh, very formal understanding of, of algorithms, of, uh, of uh, uh, software engineering, in order to actually do something that works. And there's lots of other domains that that uh, look like this. And I think more generally, I think there is a real uh, need in the machine learning space for techniques that allow you to incorporate more domain knowledge, mm -hmm. techniques that give you analyzable artifacts that, that you can then query to, uh, to ask uh, uh, deeper questions about the, the process that you're trying to, uh, to learn. So we're really excited right now about these uh, NSF-funded uh, uh, expeditions project that we're actually running with uh, a pretty large team of uh, uh, faculty members and graduate students and uh, research staff across uh, multiple institutions, but we're looking precisely at this question of leveraging these neurosymbolic learning techniques in order to understand things about the natural world, in order to uh, understand, um, for example, uh, understand uh, RNA uh, splicing, or in order to do better uh, computational chemistry, for example. And so this is actually something that I'm extremely uh, excited about. The, the project is called uh, Understanding the World Through, uh, Through Code. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, this, this is something that, uh, that I'm really excited about. Yeah, yeah. And then those translate into a lot of impact, obviously, if you're as you make progress on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I think especially this, this ability to not just make predictions, but be able to build hypotheses about the underlying mechanisms and to be able to use the fact that those hypotheses are clearly spelled out as code in order to, for example, design experiments to test these uh, these hypotheses to to evaluate uh, uh, different interventions and and how the system might react to those interventions. I think that is huge in in bridging this gap from from simply making predictions to real understanding. That is what science is ultimately about. I see. Yeah. So the the 
one underlying idea is that code is kind of a good knowledge representation format. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of uh, in a lot of science these days, uh, theories are represented in in code, mm -hmm. right? And uh, there's there's a lot to be said for these uh, for having your theories represented in code and the ability that that gives you to uh, run simulations, to probe things that would be difficult to probe in real life, to uh, to, to be able to run counterfactual experiments mm -hmm. all in silico. Well, yeah, that's really exciting. And um, this has been awesome going back and hearing about Sketch and how it's evolved over the years and connected with other things you've, you've worked on. And there's two questions that are remaining that I always ask at the end of the thesis review. Uh, so one is about objective functions. So if you could think back to during your PhD, and if you had to say what the objective function was that was guiding your research or guiding your behavior as a PhD student, uh, what do you think it would be? Was it about just scientific exploration or something else? And then what would you say is your objective function uh, nowadays? So I think my objective function actually hasn't changed much. My, my objective function from the beginning has really been curiosity. Mm. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's really about, uh, uh, you know, we have, we have these, uh, uh, things that, that we want to build and we don't understand how to do it. And, uh, and we're, we're really just trying to, to figure it all out. It's, uh, I, I have been really fortunate throughout my, uh, career to, be in environments that that have really fostered and and rewarded this curiosity driven uh, research. You know, when I started working in this area of program synthesis, nobody was paying attention. It was uh, it was absolutely below anybody's uh, uh, radar, and uh, but uh, you know we. Uh, uh, felt that this was interesting uh, work that uh, we were learning and discovering things that that were exciting and that uh, pointed in a new uh, direction, and uh, that uh, that was really extremely uh, extremely motivating, mm -hmm. and and it has been fun to uh, to see some of these research gain uh, gain traction in in the wider community, and. Uh, see, uh, uh, you know, see it turn from uh, what in the beginning was just an effort from um, a couple of people to uh, something that that is now really a, a community uh, endeavor. And and that that aspect of it has been uh, really exciting as well. Yeah, that is that is interesting to hear that. I mean, was it kind of um, scary? <laughs> at the time that you were going to this new area or did you feel that like the generality of it and the promise of it was sufficient to uh, not fear the uh, outcome? So that's a really interesting question. I think to some extent, the fact that, uh, you know, I mentioned in the beginning, I, I didn't really have that kind of uh, 
academic uh, 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 background in, in the sense, you know, as I said, I was the first person in my family to get uh, a PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, I really didn't have a lot of context um, for, uh, you know, even like, uh, uh, oh, am I, am I, uh, uh, am I writing enough papers at the right pace or am I, uh, am I getting the right, uh, number of citations or am I, uh, um, you know, I, I really didn't have, uh, that much context to, to think, oh, I'm, I'm actually doing well or I'm not, or, uh, maybe more people <laughs> should be reading my papers or, or, or not mm-hmm. it, uh, and and in some sense that uh, probably helped my uh, mental health as a student. That it it really wasn't something that uh, that I stressed too much about or or thought about. Just the the work seemed exciting, and uh, it uh, it really felt like uh, uh, we were discovering new things, and uh, and and it was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really cool to hear. And- and that's what leads to the um, new breakthroughs. And so there is a final question about advice. Um, you have just given a lot of good <laughs> advice for researchers, but just uh, to, to keep with the theme of the thesis review, the, the last question is if you could come up with one piece of advice for a new researcher. And it doesn't have to be a grand all-encompassing, if that's too tough. It could just be a useful kind of heuristic that you've kept in mind. Or it could be both, just one piece of advice for a new researcher. So I would say one really critical piece of advice is, uh, especially students starting on, sometimes they're worried about, oh, am I going to be wasting my time, right? Uh, what if what if I put all this time into this and then maybe it doesn't pan out or, or it doesn't work? And, and I think that is the wrong... Uh, mindset to have as a researcher. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a waste of time is to build something or to do an experiment that you already know how it's going to do, turn out, mm-hmm. right? That uh, That's a waste of time. Uh, if, if you're venturing into the unknown and, and you don't know if something is going to work or not, uh, even if it doesn't work, you, you learn something. And... Uh, and and in understanding why it doesn't uh, why it doesn't work, you'll you'll gain insights that uh, that uh, will be uh, that will be useful in uh, in you know building the next thing that uh, that actually turns out to to work. So so I think it's really important to have that uh, that mindset and to give yourself that liberty. To uh, uh, to uh, try things that that maybe will not pan out, and that's okay. All right, yeah, that's that's great advice. And um, like I said, this has been an amazing conversation. I was really looking forward to, to talking with you today. And so, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the thesis review. Thank you. Thanks a lot for inviting me. I, I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.